Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, happy Thursday, and I welcome everybody for tuning into the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davey, and we are the hosts, and we hope you're having a great day. It's beautiful out here in sunny Arizona at this time. It's about 86 degrees, sunny, no, a little, little wind, maybe five miles an hour. A beautiful day. Mr. Davey, how's it over there? Hey, uh, happy Thursday to you, Rob. Just about the same, a little cooler, buddy, 10 degrees or so in the mid to a little bit upper 70s, 76, 77. The sun is out and it's bright, but here's the thing. I bought my fishing life. I know we talked last week it was Fishmas, which is yes. the beginning of the fishing season here. We call it Fishmas. Chris mm-hmm. reminded us, our friend Chris Austin reminded us of that, but I bought my fishing license today, buddy. Oh, and that's, what are they charging up for that? Is it like a, a yearly one or a three-day one or a one-day yeah, one? It's an annual license. It's about 76 bucks or 78 bucks. Um so if you if you do like I do and get a second rod license, but uh-huh. they used to be annual, January first to December thirty first. Now, the when you buy it, it's good for a year from the date you buy it. Uh, so what? Are, so what's the basic price? Then what do they charge for the second uh, rod? So so you pay an extra like three fifty a year for that. So it comes out to it's close to eighty bucks if you get fresh and saltwater license with a with a um, second rod uh, permit. So about 80 oh. bucks a year. So, the, so the, the real question is that my wife would ask, do you catch that much worth of fish? You know, that's why they call it fishing and not casting. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. Well, let's bring in our wonderful lady who's the purveyor of Maven's Notebook to tell us what's going on in California water, Miss Chris Austin. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Rob. And I'll just point out it's not just catching the fish to eat it, but the experience of being out in nature with the fresh air on a boat or on the side of a river, taking advantage of our beautiful state. That's what it's, you know, it's about that too. And those fishing license fees pay for a lot of programs to maintain fish and stock fish in the state. Sure, so, sure. you know, my, my, wife, my wife tells me I should take advantage of doing that in my swimming pool with my beautiful backyard. She goes through this whole thing. So, but that's, that's her thing. Because she always told me never to buy a boat. And I always wanted a boat. And she told me to go rent one for one day. And I did. It was like $500. And we didn't catch anything. And she got real mad. She said, you know how much fish you could have bought for $500 <laughs> at the market? So I, that, well, that's the way I've been raised by my wife. So well, Chris, is ab- Chris is absolutely right. It is money well spent. I would buy it anyway, even if I went fish the annual license. I would buy it even if I only went fishing once. Because I know the funds go to a good cause. And Rob? If you ever stock your pool with largemouth bass or trout, I'm coming right over. <laughs> I, do, I, I do. I do stock my pool with loudmouth neighbors. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. I don't know that one. Well, <laughs> but anyway, Chris, here's some here's uh-huh. some fishing fun trivia though. But while you know, just to put an end on the fish discussion, did you know that you can actually fish out of the California aqueduct? Yes, and actually, know. you can fish. Some pretty good sized stripers, I'm told. I've seen pictures of people fishing out very large uh, stripers, which is just kind of hilarious, you know. You and, know, I, I know, 
I know the Los Angeles Fire Department has fished out a couple of people last time they had a flood. <laughs> oh, well, well, there's people, but you don't expect fish no, <laughs> in the no. California aqueduct. And they do this, I mean, in the Central Valley. I, yeah. I, I think the striper larva just kind of makes it through the pumps and populates <laughs> the yeah, whole aqueduct. You are allowed to fish there, but Chris, that uh, so the listeners know in case they go, you know, just tramping down anywhere on the California aqueduct, there's only certain places you can fish. There's designated spots. Yes, yes. And even and if you go in Palmdale, they actually have shade structures for you. So correct. <laughs> and you need a, and you need a license for that as well. You do indeed. Oh, Absolutely. But I, I, I do get a chuckle out of that. Yeah, well, I don't want to stop talking about fish, though, Chris, because I, was, I read the article on the McCallamy River. The McCallamy uh, that produces, you know, the salmon is just incredible this year. Yeah, well, actually, the McCallamy River is really a, a little star, an unappreciated star in the world of California salmon. It, it makes up a majority of the uh, fish, commercial fish that's caught off the coast of California. I think last year it was like 61%. I mean, a tremendous amount. And the McCallamy River is just like, it's just a little stream compared to the Sacramento River, the San Joaquin River. And all of those salmon are endangered there or, or going to be soon. I don't think every run in the Central Valley, but close. But uh, McCallany River is, is not. It's a very successful run. And it's due to a lot of really innovative efforts on uh, the, on the uh, behalf of EB Mud, uh, East Bay Municipal Utilities District, and a partnership that, uh, that was formed. It, it came out of a lawsuit, as most things in California water do, and E.B. Mudd was told, you know, you have to restore the salmon. And so they they really went after it quite wholeheartedly, hired salmon biologists and have an entire whole, a whole program going there. And they really try some unique things like um, salmon that are, that are born in the river and they, they imprint somehow on that river. So they... They kind of grow up on that river. They go out to sea, and they come back, and they go back to that same river. And sometimes even, I'm told, to the same spot where they were born. They're very, yeah. they really hone in on this. But when you, you know, when we have these drought years, and sometimes the river conditions are so bad, a lot of times they take uh, hatchery fish and uh, take them down and dump them into the bay. So they don't get the benefit of imprinting the river that they came from. Uh, and so what happens in those years is the salmon go back to the hatcheries and they just go back all over the place. And uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, the hatcheries really work to separate the stray fish and send those fish, you know, when they do the spawning process, They'll actually even genetically test them to make sure that they're only putting the salmon from that river into the hatchery. But um, but it's very expensive and it's time-consuming, and yeah. uh, you can't say that it's 100% perfect. Uh, and we really don't want those strains of salmon to mix because by doing so, we're, we're really kind of 
messing up the genetic diversity and the ability yeah. possibly of that salmon to adapt to, to things. We don't want to homogenize the salmon populations, but the more that happens, the more that, you know, the more that the fish gets mixed up, the more that that happens. So that's, we're really trying to prevent that. So anyways, the McCallamy River salmon, one year they decided that they would take the fish down themselves. They rented a boat, they put the the fish in the back of the boat in the water, and they 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 uh, took their fish out to the bay themselves, <laughs> so they wow. wouldn't die. I mean, they've gone to some um, amazing uh, steps to keep their fish going, and some unique things they they put in a lot of habitat. I mean, it's it's amazing, and they do this through a very a collaborative process with their partners on the river. And it's really a success story that we should really look to more, I think, um, you know, as we try to work to restore these other salmon runs. Absolutely. I've fished the McCallamy River before, um, mostly up as it goes up into the eastern, into the Sierras, rather, on the western slope. I usually fish the eastern side, Chris, as I've told you before, but I have fished that uh-huh. uh, north and south fork, and there's other species in there as well as salmon. There's great trout fishing in there. As, oh yeah, uh, as well. yeah. Uh, up in up in the hills, but we usually fish above. Uh, I think it's Pardee Reservoir. Um, up above that, because mm-hmm. that's where the best fishing is. There's a lot of fishing below that as well. But it, you know, it flows it flows down just next to Lodi, and then into, of course, the uh, Sacramento and Delta River Delta. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing little river and an amazing story. A lot of good good things happening there on that river, you know. And they sometimes I think they don't get enough credit for it. So it was nice to what be able to on? highlight that. Oh, I think some very interesting stories on how uh, our drought was affected by conditions on other parts of the world, you know. I, I really love stories like this because I have a theory that everything is connected to everything else. And these stories come along and it just kind of proves it. You know, global weather, global climate, it's not just, you know, what's in your neighborhood, but things on the other side of the world can impact you. And one of the stories that I believe is um, today at the top of the digest is how the Australian uh, bushfires in 2019 influenced the global uh, weather pattern, dumped a lot of stuff into the atmosphere and and really helped La Nina come along and stay, which then, of course, made our drought so very long. Um, you know, it's uh, things on the other side of the world do uh do attract things. Yeah, it cooled the ocean and hastened the formation of La Nina, which then stuck around for three time, three winters, not usually do that, uh, and, you know, really helped our drought be really, uh, re- really deep. So that's one story. And then there's another story that was um, on in the Daily Digest a few days ago, um, and about how uh, there's a desert in China, uh, Tzakatan, or I, I probably butchered that uh, desert 
And that desert, the dust, when they have a dust storm in that desert, it can blow dust into the atmosphere. And this gets picked up by the atmospheric rivers and then comes over and dumps rain on us. And the presence or the absence of this dust from this desert is looks like it kind of is a determiner of whether there's going to be a lot of rain or maybe not so much rain uh, in that atmospheric river. This dust is a factor because I guess the rain forms around the dust. So uh, well, interesting means. stories from other parts of the world. So, so we're, all, we're all affected by everything around the world. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, you know, we're also, as we have better instruments and we have longer-term monitoring of data, we're really starting to, to discover things that happen in the world. You know, we have these oscillations like, you know, uh, summer to fall, you know, uh, to winter to spring is, an, is a set of oscillations that happens on a yearly basis. And then there are other types of oscillations that happen on a decadal basis. And we're only now starting to see these because it's only in the last 30 or 40 years that we've developed a lot of instrumentation to measure stuff. So a lot of things we're starting to find out. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, we, I can I, I tell you, for our listeners, you got to go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a, a, a sponsor become a, uh, a reader of that. It's, it's just the greatest thing, and we get more in-depth. I was telling Chris earlier that we could spend a whole eight-hour show, do an eight-hour show on just what Chris writes, and uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, Chris, thank you. We, we have some special guests coming up that uh, we recorded out with you out in uh, Scottsdale. We want to catch that and go to our uh, commercial break. So we appreciate all you do, and, again, it's a great place to go with Maven's Notebook, so please uh, check it out. Chris, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everyone. Have a great week, Chris. All right. We're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to uh, come back and with uh, a gentleman who is an eminent uh, scholar and uh, person with so many uh, abbreviations behind his name. I, too many to count, but he's a very important person in, in our world, and uh, we'll have him on just a few minutes after our commercial break. So stick around. We'll be right back. on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. 
SiteOne is here to help. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes. A better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the technical service hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. KCAA. All right, welcome back to the second half of uh, The Water Zone with uh, Chris Davey and myself, Rob Starr. And we had the pleasure of going out uh, and participating in the American Society of Irrigation Consultants. And uh, we met with a gentleman named Brian Van Casey, who I had just said to you earlier that uh, this guy has more abbreviations behind his name, and he's one of the most respected irrigation consultants in the United States. So uh, here's, here's what Chris and I did with him. Good afternoon. We're here with a very special guest. His name is Brian Van Casey, and we've known him for a couple of years, many years actually, almost 19 years I've known, met interface with you on different committees and such like that, but we're glad to have you. And uh, he is, I'll, I'll say it, and I'm not doing this to make points with him, but he's one of the premier irrigation uh, consultants that I know in the world, and I, I respect him a lot. So that's my uh, nickel's worth. It's probably worth a couple thousand, but <laughs> as a nickel, I don't have the business he has. Well, I so, certainly appreciate that. Okay. So, so Brian, uh, I, know, I know you're part of part of this whole thing that's happening here with the ASIC, but how, what do you see the, what's the main purpose of the ASIC to you, and what has it benefit people like you? Well, the main purpose is um, we're a little different breed because there are you know, there's not a whole lot of us. Right. So um, it's very hard to get education that is uh, targeted towards what we do. Mm -hmm. So by having this group, which is very specific, we can target it to our membership and what they need to learn. So that's what I try to get out of it. And as conference chair, try to create a program that is balanced enough that our high-end members get something out of it and then we're not so high in that our lower and newer members don't get a lot out of it too. And so we're trying to educate and to be honest, CEUs is a big deal. Uh, you get CEUs for this and um, it's just in the, the networking is great. You know, there's, as I said, there's not a lot of consultants world. So at, at this meeting, we're about um, six to one consultants versus vendors, mm. but that's better than usual. We used to be 10 to 1. So, 
it's improving. There's more consultants out there, and there needs to be more consultants out there. Can you give us a little bit of history on the ASIC, Brian? I mean, how long has it been around? I mean, we, we some listeners out there may not be aware of what the ASIC is, American Society of Irrigation Consultants. I believe it started in 1970, very California-based. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of started because their consultants in California were having trouble getting any credibility because they were not recognized as a professional group. So it started back then, and then, um, and it still has a lot of California members, but much more across the country. So it's grown. I've been a member, I think I started in 90, 90 or 91 was when I became a member, and that was probably my first meeting was around then. And That's I, over 30 years. Yeah, I don't think I've missed one since then. Well. So. Have you seen more, I mean, there's still lots, what I, my terminology, mow and blow people who say, well, I can put in your thing, I can do this irrigation system, I can do that. And, and you kind of get what you pay for. At the you end of sign the on a napkin, right? Or <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, it's just like irrigators. Texas, you have to be licensed. I wish that was all over because you hire people and, you know, I've done this and they show you a book and you don't know if that's their job they did or they just went around the neighborhood taking pictures. I mean, you don't know. Um, But I I find that having this level, because it's a different level, it's there, it's, it's, I have to say it's a professional level. I mean, real high level versus the mow and blow guys who come around and say they do stuff. Right, but it's very regional. So um, there are large parts of the country that irrigation design is still design build. Um, the Northeast is actually very good in terms of consultants, Southern California, Arizona, Texas, even f- parts of Florida. But the Midwest is, there's very few consultants because nobody's going to pay them mm-hmm. to design anything. That's the problem. Whatever we do, you in most cases, can get for free. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's projects out there that get a little sophisticated <laughs> that uh, you need to have somebody thinking about it from day one to get especially it done right. Got, especially if you've got hills that you've got to pump up water. Or, they, well, <laughs> or just, you know, we're, our firm's a little different in that we do as much or more water supply uh, development, I guess would be the word, uh, as we do irrigation design. You know, where are we going to get the water? How are we going to get the water? How are we going to move the water? To, to get it to do what we want. We do an awful lot of that. There's a lot going on like in San Francisco with all these new office buildings with, and some of the some of the, well, the regulations in certain parts of there is that they have to have their own recycling of the water mm-hmm. and do that. So that's got to be a challenging thing if you've got a 20-story building or how do you... Well, the interest, that's one in... in and the garden's on the top floor. Right. You know? Well, that's the big thing is yeah. roof gardens now and we just got that in Boston where um, in the city beside it, if you are an institution, so colleges, and we have a huge Lots. amount of colleges, yeah. or a hospital, you have to have 40% green roof on a new building. Mm. So now we've gone from where we have maybe a green roof on the top floor to we have green roofs almost on every floor, or the, if it's residential, now everybody's got a terrace, and every terrace has got a planter, and every planter has to be irrigated, and it makes things a lot harder, hard harder. So, 
Have you seen much of a change in the membership at AIC over the years? I mean, you, you don't have to work for a big firm to be a member of the, uh, that firm, be a, an ASIC member. You can be a sole proprietor, right? Most of our members are sole, sole proprietors. Um, there's there's not a lot of big firms. Big firms, there's probably five of us that are big, maybe four. Um, so, yes, that, but, yeah. you know, when I started, I think there were, there was two of us, so now there's a lot more than that. But um, it's a matter of um, just trying to get the young people in and involved. So um, the more the merrier, I guess. Yeah, recruiting. We're talking recruiting young people is very important. Right? Well, I guess getting them into getting them interested, right? One of the problems with the irrigation consulting business, especially on the golf side, is there's no young irrigation consultants. Uh, I'm one of the younger ones, and I'm not young. <laughs> I've been doing it for 34 years, and I'm not young, but coming in. Uh, residential, commercial, it's a little better because it's probably a little easier. But on the golf side, it's going to be a real problem here in a few years, especially with how much golf work there's out there. Do you see a lot of the landscape architects who only want to stay with landscaping architecture and not do irrigation design? Or well, some of the bigger guys are they're sorting out to other come subbing out to other other design. I think that's somewhat market driven. Also, uh, the Northwest, a lot of the landscape architect firms do their own irrigation. In my market, none of them do. Mm. Uh, Southern so California, out, yeah. some do, and some right. They sub it out to someone like me. Southern California, it's it's a little of both. But uh, I think in general, most landscape architects don't want to do irrigation, and if they do, it's the low person. On the in the firm, and they probably don't know it very well. Mm. Yeah, here you go, do this. <laughs> here we have to do an irrigation design. You get you got elected, and they're not learning it really in college. Landscape architect firms um, programs, most of them don't teach irrigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so conservation, the big word out there, right these days, right. So how's that affected your business in terms of the products you use, and you know, industry practices, best practices, things like that. Well. Um, it's more affected by lead, leadership in energy and environmental design, because we get a point system, and there's still quite a bit of lead work being done, not as much probably as there used to be. So, you know, just because of that, as I always tell my customers, you've got to give me two, you have a minimum of two choices. I either have to put in drip, or I have to put in a smart controller. And you can't tell me I can't do both, either, both of them. I have to have one or the other because otherwise you're not going to get your lead points because the problem you have with like an institution is here's your sustainability group saying you have to do this and then you've got your field people saying well we don't want it <laughs> and it becomes a real issue um, but it's it's all about water conservation being more efficient making sure it's done right pressure regulations big deal mm -hmm. for for water conservation people don't realize that but you use pressure regulating sprinklers you're going to save a lot of water I find that a lot of people don't understand the whole purpose of a real irrigation system in the sense that, you know, you're gonna we're gonna get you a smart controller and it gives you all the ET information. Okay, cool. Wherever it gets its data from, okay, whether it's a weather station or whatever. But I I like to have a closed loop system to add a sensor, soil sensor, with the smart controller with the ET because ET tells you when you have to water, but the soil sensor tells you how much you need to water. Unless I'm incorrect in that, I don't think I am, but but 
to me, having all of that as a one system makes it a much smarter system. Well, and I'd go further than that. It also has to have a rain sensor. Even yes. though the soil sensor is more accurate, you shouldn't be watering in the rain, no right. matter what. Exactly. But the, probably the biggest things that's changed in the last five years in irrigation, other than two-wire, is sensing. You're sensing everything now. You're sensing yeah. soil. You're sensing uh, rain. You, depending where you are, maybe sensing uh, temperature. Humidity, you're, you're, wind, you're all of that. sensing flow. Mm-hmm. And reacting accordingly. I mean, we didn't leak, detect, and mass and and flow irrigation systems ten years ago. Hardly ever on commercial, and now every single commercial project has got a flow meter, it's got a master valve, it's got leak detection capability. Because a, the industry's built controllers that basically all do that now. Hard to buy one that doesn't in the commercial side, but it's just all about sensing. It's all about feedback. Yep. You know, and then. As we had here, we had a big discussion about building management systems and how does irrigation talk to building management systems, which has been horrible for the last decade or more. Nobody wants to do it. And now it's becoming the point where you're going to have to do it, whether you like to or not. And so things just continue to change. I know the ag. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, are there are there's several rules now that have come out by the EPA and the Water Sense Program and all that requiring smart controllers and sensors and now pressure regulated pressure spray sense. heads and now they're looking at a uh, at a um, efficient spray nozzle. Right on spray. the EPA Water Sense Program, they're yeah. looking at the the efficient spray nozzle. But the other big thing that happened was there was a, an energy legislation passed, and I believe now it's gotten through 14 states. Uh, that was an energy bill. There's a, I forget the association, but Energy Alliance or something that goes into states and pushes this bill to save energy. There's 26 items on that energy toasters, uh, fire alarms, the last ones, spray sprinklers, and you, and so uh, 14 or 15 states have passed that bill, which requires that you, EPA aside you have to use a pressure regulating spray sprinkler in those states. You're not even allowed to sell That's right. a non-pressure as, as, as a manufacturer, you're not even allowed to sell a non-pressure regulating. So that's been, you know, people don't, nobody ever, nobody saw it yeah. coming because they nobody's focused on an energy bill. They're in the irrigation business, they're all looking at things for, let's say, water in them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's the have, Energy Star program and well, they, even, they even don't want you to plug in your cell phone charger in the wall because most people have it plugged in and when they finished charging they pull it out of the phone but it's still in the plug that doesn't really draw a lot of current because it's nothing but they said well multiply it by the x amount of million people in your state <laughs> and then that adds up so that's that's another thing they would they want to reject on that as well well, I'd be first in line to be guilty of that. Yeah, <laughs> we, we all do. What that. I do, we we all we all do that. Where where do you? Well, let me, personal question: how, how did you get involved in the water industry? What, I mean, was that <laughs> so when you were a little kid, or you liked water, or, or what attracted you to the, the <laughs> business to do what you do today? So, I am by degree an agricultural engineer. Mm-hmm. So my educational background is irrigation. In ag engineering you can have different specialties in soil and water in one, which is soil and water is irrigation. 
So I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. I wanted to work for Caterpillar and design bulldozers. And I wanted to do that since I was like 10 years old. But when I was 17 years old, I found out that if I was a mechanical engineer and I wanted to design for Caterpillar, I'd be sitting in office designing one piece of <laughs> something that has 100,000 pieces. And then I found ag engineering and decided that. And one of the things I love about my job is I am outside probably 90% of the time. I don't spend a lot of time in the office. I spend a lot of time outside. On site, yeah. On site or on well, the golf course. Or. Well, ag sure uses lots of sensors. I mean, the successful farms are unbelievable what they can measure and monitor with all the sensors. Even with the drones measuring in to see what they can see in the ground, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it can do that now. So I, I'm my educational background is ag irrigation, but I do pretty close to no ag irrigation. I might do a tita here, but very little. It's amazing. I mean, they got to be so competitive in farming these days now not that they can't get fertilizer and this and that what, what do you but not change the subject but staying on that what do you think of the um, vertical farming where they buy a warehouse where they buy where they buy a warehouse and you, you use less water you don't have to worry about for, uh, insect control because it's all controlled sunlights <laughs> with led lights and stuff like that do you think that's I mean, it's, it's caught on to several places across the country that build uh, that build that uh, grow vegetables and stuff and sell it do you see that as a viable future for, for the ag world? I'm not sure. I don't know enough about it. But I will tell you one thing you're seeing on the landscape side is a lot more um, on these newer buildings, especially residential, although we're doing one that isn't residential. I mean, that you're now they're having uh, edible gardens. They're growing, even though it's a high-rise, it, they're having... Planters that are growing food mm -hmm. for the residents, and they're getting to be quite popular. And those you have to do a little differently than you just do if they were growing a shrub out in the deck. Yeah. In high density populated areas where there's no yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, well, or just for the the, the part of it, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's really it's kind of like the newer version of yeah the newer versions of community gardens that uh, that that have, but it's personal. It's right there on you. Yeah, well, the, I was part of in our, the building. I was part of the California State Water Resources Board meetings and testing on, on, uh, on what they're doing with water, new regulations they want to be. They're doing a document and a regulation that's going to show that California is going to be very efficient in water. And so they came up with the water budgets and things like that. And they talk about personal gardens for growing vegetables and how do you what kind of variants are you going to put on this and, and all that so that's getting to be really popular now and a lot of people you 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 grow vegetables and stuff at home and my wife does the same um, she likes tomatoes and she likes really good tomatoes and she doesn't like the ones at the store because it's not as good as what she likes but <clears throat> but but I see now they want to get into regulating that and what what they want to set the, the regulations for us as, as far as what uh, the water budget should be for that. Uh, and California is discussing that with the EPA, and then they don't have the same. Uh, 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 what's, what's, what am I saying here? They don't have the same uh, calculations, algorithms that the Department of Water Resources has. So they're arguing back and forth what it's going to be because they have to achieve this by 2030, and it's it's a big thing. And I get you know it's just like with SWAT, you get an idea and you start putting something together, people think it's going to be. Here it is. Here's your regulation in a year. No, it's not. It takes seven, eight, nine, ten years, as we all know, just to get something passed. 
And then, oh, well, well let's go to SABE and let's go do this. And, you know, like they keep changing yeah. the regulations and it's tough. It's tough to keep <coughs> up. Well, the irrigation industry doesn't like to be told no. <laughs> what to do, which has been a real, slows things down considerably. Yeah. They're not used to standards and that sort of thing that no. dictate. Back on the ASIC for, mm-hmm. for a bit. So, Brian, you know, you've been involved a long, long time. And, you know, all of us here are probably getting to the end of our uh, you know, willingness to participate in this stuff. <laughs> what do you see as the future of the ASIC? Oh, I think it'll fi- actually get bigger um, because uh, more and more systems require a consultant now. And, and you know, if there's a void, somebody's going to fill it. Sure. So, you know, and unfortunately what happens a lot is if somebody has a job and loses their job and can't find a new one, they, so they become a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, you know, they're going to learn it. So I think ASIC is fine. I mean, it's just like everything else, the older ones leave and the newer ones come in and take over. So. Yeah, we see, we see a, I, I call it the gray wave in the last three to five years and forward now. I mean, that's going to happen with our company. And even with, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, even with Toro, yeah. what's happening there? And and I, I see a lot more. Interesting to me when we go to the uh, Smart Innovations uh, event, I see so much women. I think that's great. I mean, there's a lot more women in water conservation than I've ever seen in my yeah. life. I call them the wow, like Karen Gus. I always joke with her. She's kind of my, there's one of my favorite people. Karen's and great. I call her, I call her, I said, you're a wow woman. And she's looking at me. She says, what does that mean? You, you, you're trying to hit on me? I go, no, 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 no. I mean, you're a woman of water. That's what, that's all I mean by that. But there's so many and they're very good at what they do. And they, they're detailed, and, and, and I see more of that happening. And, and, and we really need to show people in our industry that there are good-paying jobs, and, the, and, and, and it's, it's technical jobs as well as marketing and other kind of jobs. But it, there's opportunities galore, and, and I think we need to do more of that as an industry to promote that and, and maybe work with more universities to get stuff done with that because there is a shortage of people. And especially you get somebody like you, who can replace you? I mean, maybe somebody can. Somebody but, can replace. But, Everybody's replacing Yeah, but, right. but but it's not that easy to say when you get it. I mean, Chris can retire and they put a guy in, maybe he has two years or five years experience, but doesn't have 30, 40 years experience. Well, somebody. I'll never forget one of my, somebody made a comment to me one time, and I can't remember if it was one of my employees or one of my students because I've taught a lot. That said, well, I'll never know as much as you. And I said, that is correct. You'll never know as much as me because every day you learn something, learn I'm more. still learning something, so you'll never catch up. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's great. It's already, but, you know, irrigation, there's not a lot of schools that teach irrigation, but there are a few that are very good at it. And if you know where they are, you can get the people. And I've got two uh, people who work for me that came out of. Very good irrigation programs. What I what I, I did a venture with a, 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 a Bureau of Indian Affairs high school in Riverside. It's called the Sherman Indian High School, and I put together money. We got grant money for this, where they would bring this with Cal Baptist University. They taught hydraulics and things at the college level. Got some of their teachers involved because they get paid through this grant to come to this private high school. And, and bought stuff from the IA, all the, all the class, you know, a lot of classes, and taught these kids from from being a freshman all the way up to they graduate. And hopefully, at that point in time, one of the rec, one, of, one of the requisites are you have to get a certification from the IA. Why? Because there's not a lot of schools that teach 
what you're talking about, the real irrigation stuff. A kid, there's some kids that aren't cut out for college. And, you know, there, there, there's a lack of real good trade schools anymore in high school and things, you know, where they taught you a good working job because just not everybody's ready for that. But to have somebody who can learn that and get out of, get out of high school and get a job for forty to $60,000 a year to start because he's certified and I, I think that's a good thing to do. And I don't know why organizations like maybe the ASIC or even more so with the IA should do more of those things and, and, and go to colleges and say, hey, can we do this? Can we partner and write a grant and get it from the USBR or somebody? I mean, I, I think that would be an awesome thing to do because you need to get more people into, into, the, into, into the world doing these things. But like you said, it's hard. There's not a lot of people. You know, you get guys like him from Cal Poly, the good pup, good pup, Cal Poly. Yeah, he always says the that. Only Cal Poly. <laughs> the only one. So that would be Pomona, right? That would be the Pomona. <laughs> Cal Poly, Pomona, my alma mater. Okay. When you taught, where did you teach? Is it the college level or was it? Oh, uh, I've taught. Uh, for the IA and things I teach, like that? I've taught for the IA for ages. 30 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, over 30, probably. And I teach. Um, I do a lot of private teaching. I actually did some last week. I shouldn't call it teaching. I should call it training. I do that. And then I do, um, I've taught at Rutgers and Ohio State. And I taught for, at UMass for four years. And wow. So I've taught quite a bit. And then I, you know, I have just had hundreds. And I teach at the golf show also. So I teach a lot. I do remember a class. I think it was Tom Barrett was uh, one of the instructors. And... You came in the classroom, and maybe it wasn't Tom Barrett, no, thinking of it, but you know Tom Barrett. Mm -hmm. uh, and he introduced you, and you spoke for 10, 15 minutes, and just walking by there. It was a long time ago, yeah. in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> I've done a lot. I'm Tom White, who spoke this morning from Walt Disney World, yep. um, I've known him for over 20 years, 24 I think, and I know him because he took a class from me, yeah. and as a result of that I do all their training. Wow. So, yeah. But, yeah. It, it works. Small, small it's fun, group, too. Group. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that if I can say for me it, I, I'm interested, when I, when I first got into this business, I came from a totally different environment. Heavy electronics and stuff like that. Didn't know a thing about ET except it was a movie, you know, things like that. And I, I worked with a guy named uh, John Addington. Mm -hmm. If you know him, he owned Aqua Conserve. Oh, yeah. And so he hired me to run the company. That's where I started the thing. And I went to the library because I didn't know what the heck ET was or is. Got all these books and start talking about. Uh, crop coefficients and all this stuff and I had to read all of this stuff to go out to meetings and understand to run the business and get the technical side of it but it was really interesting once I got into it and he was a he was had a PhD in agronomy then he would go through stuff with me and showing me he he was good at what he did but he didn't know how to do the electronic part so so for us it was a good it was a good match together to do that and then from there I got to Toro and that's most of the career in, in, in this business but Finding people to come in, even the people that I've hired over the years to work for that company and Toro and stuff, it's really hard to find people who really understand products and what it's supposed to do and how, how does it move water. You know, talk about friction in this. Well, there's no friction. It's liquid. It just slides right through. <laughs> you know, they, they don't understand. Well, I, I find for irrigation to have a good employee, they have to be passionate about irrigation. They have to like irrigation. They like. They have to be 
interested in it and all aspects of it. And if they are, then they're of great importance. I know when I, well, like I'll say, I know when, when I was going to those SWAT meetings and things, and they talk about standards, I says, well, did anybody go, the company I came from before got into this industry, we were making what's called a mass flow controller, both for gas and liquid. And it was pretty high tech. And But we always worked with NIST. And I, I hated when NIST became NIST. I liked the original National Bureau of Standards. I just liked that title. It was it meant official, right? Then they went to this kind of wishy-washy, you know, National Institute of Science and Technology. Yeah, it's modern, but it doesn't have the to me it didn't have the club. But we used to work with NIST a lot, and I was surprised at the time we were doing the SWAT stuff that we really didn't go to any of these places and talk to these people from NIST because they did a lot of testing and all that. They have a lot of experience. But I don't know why we did, or did we behind the scenes that I didn't know about? I, I don't know. Well, no, um, they didn't because the IA is not a standards writing organization, which is why we have to go through ASABE. Um, so, but you know, ASAB is part of uh, ANSI, American right. National Standards Institute. So, if we get a ASAB standard, it automatically is an ANSI standard, right? And that that works well. So, Brian. Other than your association with the ASIC, there's also Irrigation Consultants, Inc. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, good company. I recommend them. <laughs> where we are a uh, irrigation consulting ba- based in the irrigation mecca of Boston. Um, we have been around a long time, 35 years now. Um, I got uh, the last Friday was my link on LinkedIn has my work work anniversary, so I've gotten f- about 150 uh, LinkedIn messages in the last week, which is great. Um, we uh, we do both golf and residential. Not a, residential for us. We're not going to see residential unless the house is probably worth at least 10 million. But we do a lot of commercial. We do a lot of college. We do a lot of ethical um, athletic. We do a lot of U.S. Embassy work. Overseas, and uh, we just do work all over the country. And uh, we did the National Mall. We do Central Park. Um, So we we have a pretty yeah, really good. We uh, we have a good reputation, and so because of that, we we we're not exactly hurting for work, and uh, are hurting for employees, but not hurting for work. So. It works really well. Yeah, just wanted to cover the fact that other than the conference chair, there's a, you know yeah. you've got a quote unquote day yeah. job. Yeah, I have a few volunteer positions, and the conference chair is one of them. A chair of the IA mm-hmm. um, Landscape Advocacy Committee is mm-hmm. another one. So the president called me this morning. Okay. And uh, he gave me authority to nominate you as the czar of water. And I'm joking with you, yeah. <laughs> but I would recommend you anyway. But if, how do you see, how do you see the future of water? And and what are if you gave me could you give me the top three issues that we need to challenge and fix in this country on water? Uh, water quality, because the quality keeps degrading, um, and to it can only degrade so far before you can't use it. Right. And the treatment is expensive. So water quality would be one. Water cost would be another. Water, as everybody says, is too cheap, which because it's too cheap, it it keeps a lot of things from happening uh, because it's just cheaper to 
buy potable water. I'm a firm believer that, especially golf, but in general, irrigation systems should not use potable water. So that's part of it. And more use, more use of reclaimed. I'm in the Northeast. In the Northeast, it is damn close to impossible to use recycled water. It's basically illegal. So um, we need more opportunity used, reclaimed, recycled, effluent, whatever you want to call it, water. Yeah. In California, when they first came out with this years ago, they called it toilet to tap. And that was a big... Yeah. That was a PR, yeah. little PR <laughs> problem there. Because they, they take you through plants now, and at the end of the tour, they have the water, and the guy giving the thing takes a swig and... Well, it's no different. It's really toilet tap now. So, yes. you know, you go into most rivers. Here's the town, takes it out on the north side, uses it to drink, dumps it out of the wastewater treatment on the south side, goes down a few miles to the next town, and they do the same thing. And the only thing that happens there is it costs a lot of money because yeah. you're treating it all the time. But it's the same water. Yeah, the price, you know, people don't value the price of water for what it really is here. You know, we had we had a consul general of Israel on the show and another uh, author named uh, Seth Siegel. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. And they talked about uh, water that they have in Israel. And there's a lot of salinity, uh, uh, and they have to worry about agriculture. They also, we found out, they told us that they, Israel sells water, you'd love this, to Iran. Nobody, hardly any knows about it, but they do, and 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 they don't use it as a weapon. They, in fact, as much as they don't like each other, they don't hold that against giving them water to live, which I think is pretty pretty decent. Okay, but but the people in Israel, down to the children, really understand that value of water about you know real using water more efficiently, and I, here, you know, it's like I, I always to say this to Chris. It's like when you go get your car filled up with gas, you're standing there and you watch the meter. You know exactly how much you're using and how much it's going to cost you at the end of the day. At your house, 90% of the country, you don't know what how much you used until you get your bill. And this is what it costs. And then you probably don't understand the bill. Right, right. The way they measure water. So. Right. And, you know, everybody's going to tiered rate, which I think is a smart thing to do. But there's going to come a time when we have to really manage the water more critical and be more observant to it and and make sure that everybody understands what it is and that without it we you know everybody wants green well you can't have green without blue <laughs> simple right. as that and i think that's got to be a big change that that's going to happen I, I i truly believe that's going to happen you know when you start hearing well we want to take agriculture out of california because it's using too much water or uh, we got to get rid of the cows because they drink too much and yeah it gets crazy it gets absolutely crazy, but I think there's ways to, there heard, has to be ways to manage this correctly. I heard a water conservation manager say once, or water conservation, she was a manager, she was a water conservation expert, say in Las Vegas, there shouldn't play soccer. Your kids shouldn't play soccer because there's not enough water to do the soccer, water the soccer fields. I thought that was an interesting perspective. That's yeah. crazy. I think maybe some of our listeners might want to be interested in what happened to, uh, during the COVID times, did anything happen to your business? How did it affect your business? I mean, we're on the backside of that now, but. To be honest, it didn't affect it at all. Good. No, good. <laughs> we were dead flat. Really? Yeah, it was I, I unbelievable. They, I know they called our industry, what was the term, uh, essential. 
So yeah, yes, we got essential things. pretty quick in, in Massachusetts. We got essential very quickly, and uh, and um, so we just went right through it. And we had a good backlog when it started, and but it really didn't affect us. Wow. Well, any parting words for our listening audience? Um, not really. And how so, do they get a hold of you um, or your company? That's important. <laughs> it's just irrigationconsulting.com. Simple. Or www.irrigationconsulting.com. Pretty simple, and it's easy to contact us that way. Okay. Great. Brian and Casey, thanks for coming on the Water Zone. We well, appreciate it. Yes. I love coming on the Water Zone. My second time. Yes. So, and great. see, we don't, we're, we're good guys. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, great. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Well, Chris, that was uh, that's what I call the great one in irrigation consulting. He's just the preeminent guy that I know and uh, totally respect what he does. It was an amazing interview, Rob, and you know, top drawer guy store. What uh, what the listeners didn't hear because we didn't record it for broadcast was discussing following that on the real pops of water. Remember, we talked for, for about ten right. minutes just on that, which we had recorded that uh, yeah. as well. Love to have him back someday, for sure. Yeah, he's uh, he's just one of the best guys I know and the smartest guy. I, I've been on several committees with him, and he's done uh, excellent leadership in those things. So I'm glad he's uh, he's with the ASIC and such. So any part I know it's you know, a minute or so left on the show. Any any anything new that you want to say about anything that's happening? Rob? Yeah, Rob, I just I just want to wish you. I mean, uh, not to take it personal, but Rob's going to have a procedure done tomorrow. We won't what it is, but I wish you all the best in the luck. Lots of luck, my friend. Oh, well, just to clarify it, it's my foot. <laughs> I yeah, it's big... foot. <laughs> <laughs> these days it could mean anything, and I just want to clarify it. It's just my foot. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's, that's about all I know. So, anyway, Chris and I uh, appreciate you coming on and listening to the show, and uh, we uh, will be back next week with some good stuff, and uh, the one thing that we always want to tell you to do is please help our planet blue. Yeah, if you like green, you can't get there without blue. So uh, have a good week, conserve water, and use it wisely, and we'll, we'll talk to you later. Have a good one. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. NBC News Radio. I'm Brian Shook.